Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host, as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 15, I spoke with the brains behind the Mindful Mover, Philip and Martina Chubb. I first came across these guys when I saw them doing incredibly impressive stuff such as one-arm chin-ups, handstand push-ups and planche push-ups and then found out that they train once a week. What I also like about these guys is how wide and varied their training interests are and how they find the most effective tool to get the job done. On today's podcast I asked them why they do what they do, how they came across these what they call the big five exercises the concept of free gains, and we discussed their philosophy when it comes to mobility training, how to evaluate a training tool's effectiveness, weighted exercises for the benefits of improving body weight skill work, the sucker mindset, what it is and how to avoid it, the myths that they have looked to bust with their own training, such as can you make gains training just once a week, why you don't actually need static or isometric work, even if you're working towards a bodyweight skill that is static or isometric in nature. I wanted Philip and Martina's thoughts when it came to direct core work and if it is even necessary. I wanted their rules for core work when they do think it is necessary. And finally, we closed with finding somebody's starting point for the big five exercises. As I said, I really think you're going to get a lot from this podcast. I love the fact that Martina and Philip experiment with their own training to find out what is and what isn't isn't necessary. And I think you're going to take a lot from this. Let's get started. So on today's podcast, I have Martina and Philip Chubb, otherwise known as the Mindful Mover. Now, without me meaning to steal their thunder... I will let them introduce themselves, but I first came across uh, both of these guys on Instagram when I saw some pretty impressive things, stuff like one-arm chin-ups, planche push-ups, handstand push-ups, and then you find out that this person trains once every week or so. So that, for <laughs> me, is somebody that's going to be worth listening to. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Martina and Philip. Um, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit more, go for it. And uh, if once you feel happy with that, we'll go into why do you do what you do. Okay. So uh, I'm Philip. Um, I got into training. Uh, I started doing martial arts like 14 years ago, something like that. I don't even remember. It's been such a long time. Um, and then I started doing break dancing. One of my friends said something like, "Oh man, you know, with your build, you could do planches and stuff." Look up B-Boy Junior. I looked up B-Boy Junior. I saw what a planche was, and from there I got into bodyweight strength training. And uh, the rest, basically there is history. Like it went from there. Yeah. And um, because Phil was into that stuff, I also felt like I needed to get into it because <laughs> I was dating him at the time. So like, it was just something else that we could relate on. So now like from there, we came up with like our method on body weight training. And I, I told Phil, we need to take this further. We used to just train people in person. But then we moved on to like sharing our ideas online every single day. We used to do that on Facebook, but then we moved over to Instagram and that's where the, the mindful mover came out basically. And now like we do online coaching and th- like, that's basically what we do. 
and the name mindful move like i absolutely love it because you see people go to the gym they don't really have a plan they don't really have an idea of what they're doing they're not really paying attention to what they're doing either so where did the name uh, the mindful mover come from so initially mindful mover um we were really into the movement culture um so i think that's like something that ido portal started or kind of like he was a big part of it um and actually nowadays we don't even really like our name <laughs> like we don't feel like it uh communicates exactly who we are now because we mainly focus on body weight strength um and like you know the big five movements that we like and just having like recovery lots of recovery days where we just kind of relax so it's not like um anywhere near the ideas that we had from the movement culture it really yeah, yeah. it really changed it used to be really big about movement but then later as we started thinking differently and our thinking evolved we aren't so much about the movement we're more so about making gains with less time having to go to the gym so the mindful part still applies but the mover part is kind of uh like we don't think of ourselves as movers anymore. We used to think like that, like, oh, we're movers first. <laughs> but then the the name stuck because everyone still remembers us by that. And we tried to change it one time, but everyone was like, no, take it back. And we're like, oh, sorry, 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 guys. And we put it back up. And <laughs> there was like one day where if you were really noticing, you would notice our name changed to something else. And then it changed right back the next day because uh, people were not happy about the change. So we stuck with it. And was there a sort of, like I saw one of your posts recently that I really liked, um, because obviously you've got all the movement stuff, but then it was a post where it said, look, if you want to train to look good, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think it's very easy to be like either in one camp where it's like, it's all about the movement. You shouldn't care about how you look, focus on what your body can do. And then there's the other camp who are like, look, we want you to look good, to have the confidence. I like how you guys kind of meet in the middle. Uh, that's, that's kind of one of the things. I think there are two kinds of people in the world. I think there are people who like to look good and who will admit that they like to look good. And then I think there are liars. <laughs> you're one or the other. You're either you're admit you like looking good or you're a liar. But there's like who doesn't like to look good? So I don't think there's a, a problem with liking to look the way you uh you feel and everything, or liking to look like you train. Yeah, yeah. And I always say to people, like, for example, if you look at Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters, if they're in a certain weight class, <laughs> Uh, swimmers I mean they all look great and it's nothing to do with the specific discipline it's more about the method with how they've got there so yeah. Martina you mentioned the big five so uh, this is a concept I absolutely love but for people who aren't familiar with what the big five is do you guys want to chat about what they are and how you came to the conclusion that these exercises are where we need to prioritize time absolutely so um, the big five that's uh, five exercises it's the back squat the planche push-up, the handstand push-up, the one-arm chin-up, and the front lever row. So these are the five movements where if you train all five of these, you'll make pretty decent gains in terms of strength across all five of those. But what you'll also experience is what we call free gains, which are gains that you didn't actually work for in other movements. So for example, if you work on your planche push-up and your handstand push-up, your weighted dips will go up for free without doing weighted dips. Now, working on weighted dips might not have as uh, significant a carryover to your plant push-ups and handstand push-ups, but the other way around is a little bit more true. If you work on handstand push-ups and plant push-ups, your dips will improve. So that's the whole idea of the big five. These movements will give you a wide range of gains in other movements without directly having to work on them. 
that makes a lot of sense. And a phrase you had with, which I absolutely love and almost typifies your big five approach is that exercises aren't Pokemon. And <laughs> as, as a self-confessed Pokemon kid, I, I love Pokemon as a kid. That really made me chuckle. Um, but I think in the calisthenics world, it's sort of, and I'm certainly guilty of this because I said um, maybe a year or so ago, I was like, right, I will get my handstand and then I'll use the pushing strength and then I'll hopefully turn that into a human flag and then you keep building up. Whereas your approach is a little bit different in that you don't necessarily have to train for, for example, a human flag in itself, but you can train for something like a handstand push-up and a one-arm chin and still have the pushing and pulling strength, which might mean that you're going to progress a lot faster, which I really, really like. Why do you think people fall into the trap of thinking, I need this exercise and then I need this one and then I need this one and almost like they've got a whole catalog of movements. I, I think it's two things. I think one, we kind of are in a very do more kind of culture where if you see something, if you add another goal, you have to do more to get it. Where if you, if you want to get more gains, you have to do more to get those gains uh, rather than like a do less kind of culture. So it's always about adding more work and grinding and hustling and working really hard. And I think number two is people have a lot of um, what's called loss aversion. So if you have a particular game, let's say a handstand push-up, then it's very, very scary to stop training the way you did because you might lose that handstand push-up and now you're scared to lose it. So um, with something like a human flag, let's say somebody gets a human flag by working on human flags. And then we tell them, well, actually, you could probably just train your handstand push-up and your one-arm chin and you'll keep that human flag or even improve it for free. That person might get actually kind of scared because it's like, well, I worked really hard on this human flag. I don't want to change my training method and possibly end up losing my gains. And uh, if you have that loss aversion, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to play around and tinker with what movements give what free gains to other movements. But that's where we kind of came in and we tested it for years and years and found out which ones give free gains towards other ones. And it's still an ongoing project. We still test things to this day to see which ones uh, can result in free gains towards other ones. Like another one we're going to do later probably will be uh, the back squat and deadlift. And we'll see if back squats are enough to give deadlift gains for free. And this is what I like about you two guys. Not only are you really responsive on Instagram and you actually interact with people, but uh, <laughs> uh, Phil, I remember I said to you, I'm not really sure whether or not back squats will lead to deadlift gains, but you then said, well, I'm going to test it. So <laughs> you'll have some evidence. And that's what I like, rather than sort of just disagreeing with me or anything like that. You're like, well, we'll see. And I think a lot of people, they, again, talking about camps, they either hide behind the, where's the research to prove this? Or yeah. they'll hide behind the, this is my theory. This is why I believe it. I don't need evidence. Um, and it's almost like, well, you either don't do anything because you're like, I have to see the research. Or you're just like, this is my hunch, but I have nothing to prove it with. <laughs> that's so. That's such a good point. When, like, um, when it comes to like theories, especially everyone, everyone has a theory about what should work and what doesn't work. And I think one of the key things we have to remember about theories is that theories have to have something that can disprove them. So if I say um, I have a theory that you have to deadlift to make deadlift gains, then my disproving mechanism would be, but if you do squats and you make free deadlift gains, then I'm disproven and my, dead, my deadlift theory is incorrect. And I think if we all try to make sure that when we make a theory that we have that disconfirmation, 
that's a lot better. It's a much better start for experimenting and seeing what can work and what can't. Yeah. And I also like how that can lead to different things. Cause, uh, I direct messaged you and I said, Oh, if you don't mind me asking, what are your, uh, what are your numbers in terms of squat and deadlift? And I was like, okay, if this squat experiment, if he only squats and his deadlift goes up, that's legit enough for me. I think you said your snatch grip deadlift was, was it one eighty? Uh, it was 400 pounds. I think that's 180 kilograms. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, yeah. sounds about right. I mean, my math conversion is horrible, but I definitely I'm remember <laughs> doing it before uh, coming onto the podcast. So yeah, in, in your case, if I simply, if somebody said to me, oh, I back squat a lot, my deadlift went up in my head, I'd be like, yeah, but what's your training age? Cause if you're yeah. a total beginner, you can do anything and anything will improve. Whereas for example, when you're uh, snatch gripping 180, then uh, I'm like, okay, if the deadlift goes up, then there's probably something to this. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll see you there soon with that one. So with your, with your big five, uh, another question I have is, um, so I'll take myself as an example. I definitely cannot do a one arm chin up. How do you determine the, cause I think what a lot of people might misconceive or, uh, misunderstand about your work is that you've got to start at the handstand push up or the one arm chin. Obviously you guys have regressions, how do you find out what the appropriate starting place is for a trainee? That's a great point. Yeah, sometimes people um, see that we post that and they think, but I can't do a one-arm chin-up yet, so what am I supposed to do? And we're saying, usually we say, work towards them. So if you work towards them, you're going to make you know, pretty decent gains. But even if you don't reach them, you have to work towards them. That's the idea. Um, so if someone can't do one of the movements we post, then we typically look at where they are in terms of progress. And then we use whatever regression fits the rep scheme that we're going to use. So like if I see somebody and they want to work towards a handstand push-up, and maybe they're working, uh, they have like a one rep on the wall with their chest to the wall, and, but we're working, you know, something like six to eight reps that cycle, then I might have them use an easier variation for that six to eight reps to bring up how many reps they can do on the wall and then we'll move them back to the wall we do a lower rep cycle of like three to five reps something like that so it really depends on what rep scheme we're using and what progression they can use for that rep scheme so the the, the reps dictate what load they're going to use that's yeah that makes a lot of sense and uh before we dive into your philosophy on mobility which i find really really interesting and um, you said you do a lot of your stuff online. How do you go about, cause I've seen some really poor online resources and I've seen some fantastic ones. How do you go about being able to get your client to either a assess themselves or B, how does your assessment process look like look in terms of actually getting the most value for your client's time and perhaps not spending ages being like, can you try this? Okay. You can't try this. Okay. Let's do this. Okay. Let's do this. So how do you streamline that process? So it's time efficient but it gets them to where they need to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. So like with any training that we get coming in, we first ask them, what are your goals? Because everyone's going to be different. And if I have like a whole list of like maybe bent arm strength skills that I want to send over, they might only be interested in straight arm or just like lower body or just mobility or something. So first we ask that, and then based off that, I have like um, like a, a list of like movements that I've already written down that I need to see. So it's comprised of like generally though, it's bent arm strength, straight arm strength, lower body, and some mobility um, assessments. But basically there I will add in like 
um, do any handstand push-up variation that you can do. So this goes all the way from piked on the ground to feet elevated to chest to wall to even freestanding. And then if I gauge more information from them and I ask them like, hey, can you, like maybe their goal is to do a 90 degree push-up maybe they can already do a 90 degree negative, but they want to be able to do the push-up. Then I'll ask them to see like, hey, can I see your 90 degree negative or your one-arm chin negative? But it's really, really personalized to the person. And I find out based on how like they respond to certain things, like what the goals they have. And then um, it's not really that difficult. Like I don't find like I have to go back and forth. Like I've never really had to do that. Like everything that I've told them to uh, show us they've shown and it was it's always been really 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 simple yeah, for us pretty yeah easy. yeah that, that makes sense um one of the i think it's a coach called uh Vern gambetta but he has a phrase that testing is training training is testing and it sounds almost similar to what you guys have said in the sense of right let's just use our regressions to find out which one is actually a trainable quality like yes, yeah yes. i mean i suppose my equivalent would be if somebody says i don't know i want to back squat 100 kilos then i don't know let's say they can do 90 for one it's like well we're not going to have you do 90 kilos for one rep because we're not going to get enough of a training stimulus whereas if you can do i don't know 70 for five great we might that's where we might start yes exactly exactly and in terms of the assessment and you said there was some mobility assessments uh, is there any specific mobility assessments that you tend to favor? I know you guys, uh, or in fact, what mobility assessments do you guys favor or is it dependent on the person? And the second part of that is what is your philosophy when it comes to mobility training? So it really depends on the person. If they come in saying, I just want enough mobility to live life. And it's like, okay, I want to see, you know, how good is your squat? How good is your forward fold? Um, how mobile are your hip flexors, like your split squat, how good is that, et cetera. Uh, or if we have somebody comes in who wants to be able to do, you know, the Jean-Claude Van Damme split between two trucks kind of thing going on there, then we have a little bit of a different assessment for them. It's like, show me how far your middle split is now, and then based on where you are, we'll see what we do uh, to work towards that. Um, our philosophy with mobility, this is, a, this is a, kind of gets interesting. So we kind of believe that most people don't need direct mobility training days. So most people, when they see that they have a mobility goal, they, they tend to think, okay, I'm going to add extra mobility sessions to my programming. So now they're already training several times a week. Now they're going to add uh, mobility training several times a week, where we think, let's see how can we get you mobile in your strength training session without having you do too much extra mobility. So rather than having them do another stretch session, they might do movements where their mobility is already built in to their strength. So for example, uh, a split squat, when done properly with where the front heel stays flat and you go past the toes and the back leg stays straight, that will improve the mobility of the front ankle and the back hip. And rather than having to now go off and do another mobility session where you stretch, and work on the mobility of your calves and your hips, you're already getting that with your strength training during the same session. So you basically kill two stones with one bird at that point. Yeah, I think, uh, I think almost where people go wrong as well with mobility is, for example, they'll introduce a back squat and then somebody won't get their hips below their knees and then they'll be like, right, let's come completely away from the back squat and let's do this hip mobility exercise rather than say, right, 
how about we give you a heavy dumbbell, get your elbows between your knees when you squat down. It's like, exactly. ah, don't have a hip mobility problem when we give you an exercise that seems to work for you. So is the issue really hip mobility or is it just that you don't know how to control your body and you don't, you've never asked your body to do something and therefore it struggles with the motor pattern? It's exactly. It's like when I, um, I, when I first started squatting, one of the ways I got down to getting a deeper squat, I wasn't able to squat where my, um, my glutes almost touch my ankles nowadays. I started off by just working on heavy squats. And then as the weight got heavier, I noticed my range of motion started getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So rather than having to do direct mobility work, I just let the load of the, the, the weight push me down deeper into the squat. So it saved me a lot of time. So now I don't have to do a, uh, another session of uh, stretching. Which is nice, and uh, squats are a nice one, and I I like heavy RDLs as well as a similar yeah, lower body one. one of my favorites. What what are your what are your equivalents for upper body, if that makes sense? Uh, for upper body, usually hanging, yeah, is one of them. So if people are working towards one arm chins, then they're usually going down to the bottom of a, of a hang anyway. Um, especially also on rest days, like if you pass by a bar, so people hang off that and mobilize themselves there. Um, Anytime that they're doing any sort of uh, movements like uh, push-up work or row work, I tell them to make sure they just get that full range of motion so it goes all the way there, all the way forward. Same thing with the handstand push-up, all the way down, all the way up. So they're getting stretched out there. And then one of my favorites is the, uh, the trap three raise. So if you want overhead mobility, then working on those is one of the best things to, to train because you'll see like a day-night difference right after your first set. Those are really awesome. And what I also like that you kind of alluded to there is a lot of the people in the calisthenics realm that I follow on Instagram, yes, they do really impressive things with body weight, but it's almost like because they enjoy body weight, that then becomes their method. And it almost it, it's almost the other way around. What I like about you guys is you just seem to pick the best tool for the job. So my first question is, how do you determine whether something is quote unquote the best tool? Because I know there's debate about whether the best of anything exists. So my first question is, how do you evaluate a given tool's efficiency or effectiveness? Uh, and that goes um, back to the testing and the, the, uh, the free gains. So we look to see what movement gives the widest range of gains in the other movements. So with back squats, for example, we're seeing we're, we're back squatting, then we're noticing, oh, hey, that's interesting. Uh, when we back squat, our step-ups go up, our split squats go up, our uh, sprints get faster, our uh, deadlifts are improving. So if we notice that kind of trend, we'll take note of that. And then we'll say, okay, let's try a different lift. Let's try a, a step up and see, does a step up improve the back squat and our sprints and this and that. And we'll see which one basically gives the widest range of gains for the time that we put in. And uh, that's kind of how we figure that kind of stuff out there. So the same thing with like um, a planche push-up, for example. We'll say, okay, we'll do a planche push-up. Oh, that's interesting. It makes the bench press go up as well. And then we say, okay, does bench press make the planche push-up go up? Uh, bench press doesn't make the planche push-up go up. Okay, then guess what? Now planche push-up is what we're going to use for our time, and we'll toss the bench press out so we know we'll get free gains there. And what I like about that methodology is it's almost uh, – a, a lot of people in calisthenics might be a quote-unquote specialist or a generalist, <laughs> depending on which way you look at it. But uh -huh. what I like is you're like, right, these five exercises – get as good as you can with these and actually more doors open up. If you want to go and do a human flag, you can. Yeah. Um, if you want to go and, I don't know, squat a crazy amount of weight or go into the Olympic lifts, that door's open for you as well. Yeah. Yes. Um, how, which weighted exercises have you found that actually 
we need to use this weighted tool because calisthenics doesn't give us that opportunity to train that thing, if that makes sense. Uh, I found that's most applicable to the lower body. Yeah. So you can try to train calisthenics with the lower body and get stronger, but it seems to be pretty difficult. Like I've, I've seen people get some pretty impressive pistol numbers, but then again, they're still using weight at that point. So it's kind of like you, you're going to use weight. I don't, I don't really know too many strictly bodyweight exercises that'll let you match a back squat. I haven't seen too many, but it, I mean, maybe they exist. Maybe I just haven't thought of them yet or somebody hasn't thought of them yet. Um, so that's probably the biggest area where with body weight for the upper body, I think it's probably one of the best tools you could use. You can get super strong with that. But for the lower body, I think if you stick to just body weight, you're going to hit a wall eventually where it's just going to be kind of like, you have to do really weird stuff. Like no, like one legged sissy squash or something like that to get your strength to go up. And at that point it's just like, just back squat so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's maybe, maybe that's why people don't necessarily get into calisthenics. Um, like, for example, if, uh, I don't know, if I want to overhead press my body weight and I want to work up to that, in a very, very simplistic term, I can be like, right, I did X amount of kilos this week, slide on a couple more in a couple of weeks. Whereas uh, something like a handstand push-up, people, because you have to use different exercises, people might be put off by that because they actually have to think about it a little bit more, dare I say. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that too. Like, if you're really, really, really attached to the numbers – it can get kind of uh, what's the word? Like, I guess maybe a little bit demoralizing, or it might make you feel a little bit like insecure, and you might want to start trying to add in certain exercises just to see if your numbers are going up. Uh, I think that kind of can become a trap a little bit if your goal is to pick the best things possible. So, like you know, if you want to have the widest range of gains, then working the planche push-up will probably be better than working on a bench press. Because if you work on the planche push-up, your bench will probably go up. The reverse is probably not as true. But if you really want to see a number go up, then the bench press is probably a better choice if you just want to see that number go up. The problem is, let's say you want to get a planche push up, but you're concerned about a number, you're going to have a kind of an issue there. So I, we often tell people, you know, don't get too attached to the numbers that can end up leading you, you know, towards a different route just because you're kind of basically insecure. And I haven't written this question down. Um, and I'll tell you the reason for my question in a second. So I was at a conference a couple of years ago and the guy presenting did, uh, he worked with track sprinters and basically the coaches said to him that they were worried about the weights that the guys were lifting in the gym because they wanted them to be fresh um, for the track. But the, this coach in particular thought, right, I need to keep getting them stronger because it's, we can't pull their strength back anyway. So he brings in a, bio, a biomechanist and the biomechanist works out that a pistol squat with 10% body weight was the equivalent of a back squat with one and a half times body weight, mm. um, which I thought was pretty cool. Cause I was like, mm. I don't know how you've done those calculations, but <laughs> if you've, if you've only got a little bit, if let's say you don't have a gym, but you do have a dumbbell that I don't know, weighs 10 kilos, you still have an option to strength train. Um, I work mainly with youth athletes. So I'm always looking for where we can save time, which mm. is why I like your methodology with the big five. Do you guys work with any youth athletes at all? Um, we had one guy, I think he was, he was a 12. He was 12? Yeah. Oh my yeah, God, yeah, yeah. yeah. His name was Aiden. Yeah. I remember him. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that was a while ago. Was that like, was the only kid. Like the yeah. karate world champ. He was kind of some karate world champ. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, like, it was I, awesome. It was, it was great. Yeah. Well, we've had some was, younger ones. That was the only kid though. Yeah, that's one of the youngest ones we've ever had. Fair enough, fair enough. Like I said, I, I like the fact that 
um, for me, when I'm training, well, any sort of athlete, I'm aware that their time is precious. And yeah, yeah I mean, you guys go for it on from the spectrum of like, nobody wants to live in a gym. And if you do, good luck to you. But <laughs> going on that we want to uh, partake. And that's why I asked the question about uh, youth athletes. Um, another thing I want to talk about is, um, and this almost uh, goes back to the experiments we spoke about. Um, you talk about people having a sucker mindset. What do you what do you mean by this? I find these posts quite amusing. <laughs> so quite true. Uh, generally, when, when we say a sucker mindset, typically it's people who succumb to something that's called confirmation bias, which is basically where people will look for anything that proves their point right, and they will toss out anything that disproves their point. So one of the things that we were working to explain to people was that you can make gains on as little as one training session per week, you know, given that you train hard enough and stuff and everything like that. And what we did to prove that was that we basically worked out once a week and we took our gains from there. And then we did that for a couple months and we tracked how our progress went up and the progress did go up. So that would disprove the idea that once a week training can't work. Despite that proof, some people didn't want to believe it and still don't want to believe that once a week training can work. So those people would be suckers because they're having confirmation bias. They look for this study that says once a week training can't work or that study that says once a week training can't work or this theory that they had that once a week training can't work despite the fact that we're literally showing them proof of it working. So if you basically close your, your ears and your eyes and you say, eh, that's what we mean by a sucker mindset. Yeah. And uh, what I quite like, um, I've got it written down in front of me. You, you almost have three branches of suckers where you talk about narrative suckers, science suckers, and uh, stubborn suckers. Do yes. you want to uh, dive in a little bit uh, into those sort of three categories? Absolutely. So the, the narrative suckers, those are people who typically make a particular narrative and it might be like a theory or it might be like just a, a story that they tell themselves like, oh, I can't possibly train once a week and still make gains. So that's what I call a narrative sucker. Like I need multiple days a week to get a training response. Yes. That's a narrative. That's a narrative. And with those kind of narratives, it's okay to have that narrative, but you have to have some way to disprove it. And you should try to disprove it. And if you try to disprove it and you can't disprove it, that's okay. But if you just have a narrative, people need to train multiple times a week and you never try to disprove it, I think that's a narrative sucker. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Next one was um the science sucker. So this yes. is a person who basically believes science without a single doubt. So we think science is great when it's done properly and when it's done well and when it's good science. But the idea of like something being scientifically proven is kind of an oxymoron. You can't really prove something uh, in all cases 100% of the time. A single disconfirmation can disprove something, but you can't prove something unless you have all the evidence from the past, future, and the present across the entire globe. So people who say like, no, oh, this is scientifically proven, or this study says that this happens, even when that point gets disproven, those will be called science suckers. They're saying, oh, well, once we can't, can't work because uh, this study says so, and it's like, we just showed you evidence that it does work, that would be a science sucker. And then the stubborn sucker is just a person who just closes their eyes and their ears when they see something gets disproven and just kind of like does this. Uh, and then they double down. And, and, oh, they double down. Yeah. Yes. So um, 
anytime someone, you know, you disprove somebody and then they, uh, they actually like double down on their original statement, that's what we call a stubborn sucker. So someone who just like, well, goes all in on their original statement, despite the fact that it got disproven. But yeah. Something, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say the, the science suck is a funny one because um, my powerlifting coach sent me an article, which I thought was quite funny. Um, it was called the, uh, the death of PubMed. I don't know if you've heard of PubMed. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. So uh, obviously a big collection of uh, scientific journals. Um, but it says people who say stuff like this is scientifically proven. They wouldn't be able to tell you anything about the science. And they wouldn't be able to tell you... <laughs> <laughs> what makes a good study? They wouldn't be able to critique the study. They wouldn't be able to tell you about the study's methods. Uh-huh. Yeah. They haven't even read the study, but no. science proves that X, Y, Z. That that's that's always funny. It's funny to yeah. to show people like that study. They say, "Oh, look at the study. The study says this," and I'm like, "Did you read what happened in the study? Did you notice the the conclusion that they drew from it was actually different than the methodology they used to actually prove it or quote unquote prove it?" So, There's yeah, so much into it. Too. Like, um. Typically, when we look at a study or something, I'm like, but what was the sample size for that study? Yes. Because if it was, it w- if it was like really tiny or in a particular area, just in one area, that's also like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Like if you have a, a study with like 10 people and then one person has like a weird reaction, then you could say 10% of that, that study group had a weird reaction. That sounds like a lot, but it's actually just one person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like, you can get extreme results from some of these studies. So I think it's really important to look at them with a very skeptical mindset and just kind of not take what the conclusion is as absolute truth. Yeah. And it, it's funny because I think training and looking at science are kind of similar in the sense of just like people, for example, don't want to experiment with their training in case it's wrong and they feel like they've wasted four weeks. Uh-huh. They also don't want to waste an hour reading this study, which they thought to be true, but then they read it and then they're like, oh, the methodology is rubbish, but I've wasted <laughs> an hour of my time. Yeah. And then they don't really know what to do with that information. Of course. I think people just don't even, they, they, they won't even begin to understand how to even read. Yeah. I can't even pretend to know I, I, I'm able to read them. Yeah. I like, some, I think one of the things that helped me was uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, that book. That's a great book. It's a great book. Uh, he goes over um, some of like the biases that people may have um, and then how this can affect uh, designing studies even. Yes. That's one of our favorite books. If you, uh, if you don't have that, something definitely to get, especially if you want to read studies or read literature or if you want to just see where people can sometimes uh, – so come to their biases. So, yeah, to their biases. That's a great book to read. And I also think that, for example, even simple things like who was the study funded by? And even if the study, yes. wasn't, even if the study wasn't funded, like, for example, uh, I published a research paper on uh, change of direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, my results were such that, it, to me, that felt like there was a good point to make. But if the results weren't as I wanted them to, uh-huh. to get something published, you still need to have a conclusion or a concluding statement. So even if the evidence isn't that strong, you're yeah, going to yeah. want to say this study concludes X, Y, Z. Like you don't want to say in conclusion, this study found nothing and I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it was all for nothing. All for- <laughs> or or our, our favorite. We're not sure yet. I'm not sure. So it's like, people don't like that people don't like neutrality i guess or just like not being certain yeah 
uncertainty uncertainty yeah but i think uh, now we're uncertain of everything yeah and i think that's good that's good we're skeptical yeah <laughs> i i think science is the same way like this the same way i thought it was interesting the same way that you said that for example uh someone who's got a handstand push-up maybe doesn't want to come away from it like even with me and my powerlifting training and it's common in powerlifters when they go from a strength block to a hypertrophy block they're thinking oh, i don't want to go to a hypertrophy yeah. block and i might lose my strength <laughs> yeah 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 lots of version <laughs> that's awesome daniel Clement's book are, are there any other reasons why you think so you, I love the fact you guys do a lot of experimenting with your own training. Are there any, are there any other reasons you can think of why, for example, people are much more likely to either download a program off the internet, pay for a program rather than actually think, Oh, I know, let me try this for a month and see if I get better. Why do you think people aren't so keen on experimenting with their own training? If I had to guess, I think loss aversion is one, but I think also another one is um, there's kind of, like an anxiety feeling. I don't know if other people feel it, but I kind of feel it sometimes when I am experimenting with something and I have to wait like, you know, a couple weeks to see if it pans out. So it's like, okay, I'm going to try this new method of training. And I know I'm going to have to wait at least like, you know, three weeks to see if the gains really come from it. And it's like, if I am wrong, then I just wasted three weeks of training that could have been used in another method that were that was actually correct and would have done, given me like you no know, guaranteed gains compared to this newer one that might work better or might work worse or it might not work at all. I think a lot of people get scared of that. And uh, I think that's kind of an issue because when you really think about it, um, fitness is a field where you can kind of play around with things and you won't lose too much, but you'll probably gain a lot if you find something really, really like good like your health or finance, if you play around with those, you could lose something very, very valuable and not be able to get it back. But with fitness, it's like you can put your gains as a gamble and see if you can save yourself a lot more time later. So for example, when Martina and I started training uh, once a week, we're basically saying, okay, we might maintain gains for these next couple of weeks or worse, we might lose some gains for the next couple of weeks. But if this experiment pans out, we will save ourselves hundreds of hours per year not having to train and still make gains. I think when you are having that kind of mindset, it can be a little bit scary, but it's important, I think, for most people to be okay with that and to say, you know what, hey, I might lose a little bit in the short term, but if it pans out, this long-term investment will be really, really worth it for the rest of my life. So that's a problem. And even if, even if, it, doesn't, even if it doesn't work out, if you're comfortable in thinking, well, I've learned something from that and now I'm not going to waste time training like this because I've shown that it wasn't as effective as training like this, you've still learned something. Absolutely. But I can 100% understand the anxiety feeling. Like, for example, I have uh, my coach who writes my powerlifting program. And even though I understand how to write a strength program and all that, in the back of my mind, there's still a little something being like, what if it doesn't work as well as you want it to? Like, what if you're not in good shape when coming yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I can understand. And I also think, um, just from my own personal experience, I get paralysis by analysis where I get mm -hmm. hung up on stuff that is, in the grand scheme of things, it's irrelevant. I'm like, oh, five sets of five? Or do I do five sets of four? And like you're like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Like, just get the work done. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's the problem. Like, you know, we can't really tell what's optimal. I, I always make the joke, you would need like two twins 
in two different universes living the exact same life, but different training programs to, to really compare what's happening. That'd be the only way we could tell. So we can't tell what is optimal, but we can tell the minimal amount that you need to make gains. So if you do one set, one time per week, you can be like, next week, see? Oh, I didn't make any gains, that's interesting. Okay, fine, this time I'll do two sets, one time per week, and I'll try that. Oh, no gains made still. Then you can do three sets, one time per week, and you say, oh, that's where I started making gains. Great, now I know the minimum amount of work I need to do to make gains. And from there, you can kind of play with that threshold like there, but you can't really tell what's optimal. You can only tell what's minimal. That's the, that's the difference there. And that's what I like about uh, your guys' approach is that a lot of coaches, they'll say stuff like, oh, I believe in the minimum effective dose. And then you'll say, okay, what is the minimum effective dose? And they'll be like, the minimum amount of training you need to do to make progress. And I'm like, and what is that? <laughs> and they're like, oh, I don't know. It's, it's all theoretical, but read a research paper on it or something. Back to science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so going back to the experiments uh, that you've done, um, so obviously you mentioned the one about training frequency. Another one of yours I really liked um, that for me almost flies in the face of everything that strength and conditioning or science might tell us is um, your, your abandonment of statics and isometrics. So <laughs> the reason why I like it is because one of the first things you're sort of taught in fitness, if you will, is a specific adaptation to impose demands. Mm. So that would say if you want to perform a static position like a handstand or a human flag, you need to do or need to do static work. Um, so how did that experiment come about and what did you do during the process of the experiment and how did you test it? So we found that there was a really, really popular idea, especially in bodyweight strength community, that you had to do statics to move on to harder movements. So like, for example, if you wanted to get a, a planche, then you had to hold a L-sit for a minute before you can move on to doing even tuck planches. Or if you wanted to get you know, to a straddle planche, then you had to have a 60-second tuck planche. And if not, you couldn't move on. Um, and to me, that was kind of like uh, really interesting because it was kind of like narrow. I found I had a straddle planche, but I still couldn't do a 60-second tuck planche. So that automatically, the same thing, just disconfirmed the idea that if you want to get a uh, uh, a straddle planche that you have to have a tuck planche. And from there, I started thinking like maybe these static things aren't, you know, 100% uh, needed. So we had a lot of people who had um, issues with planching, like their gains would come in, the next day they would lose their planche and they would gain their planche and it was kind of, it was kind of fickle. And we ended up making a movement called a pike pull through, which is one of the first things we um, kind of like showed off that kind of like a, kind of helped us take off because it was kind of contrary to a proper belief at the time. But we started having people like, you know, press up from like basically the bottom of an L-sit into like a kind of like a, a plant position. And what we started noticing is that people were able, after doing this drill, to perform planches and perform them a lot more frequently and a lot less, um, what's the word, like, it was more consistent. They were able to perform the planche more consistently and without ever having to do static training. Mm. So like, even to a point that like, we had one woman, she had trained uh, planches for two and a half years using things like bands and statics and all that good stuff. And then we had her train pike pull-throughs for like six weeks and all of a sudden, bam, her planche comes in. 
So that was one of the first ones we um we kind of played around with, and uh, we kind of figured out that you didn't need to do statics to get better at statics. You could do dynamic training, and your statics would improve for free. And I think a, a, a point that people might miss with the static stuff is with the example that you gave and with other, like, let's say, I don't know, you're doing a, uh, a pike push-up to help your handstand. You are still going to be in a similar enough position at some point in the movement where there's going to be some transfer of strength. Yes. Whereas um, when I briefly tried training my handstand, I'd almost find that I, and this will feed into my next sort of question, I almost found that if I hit the balance point right, I could hold it, you know, 20, 30 seconds, no problem. But it was almost like flipping a coin as to whether I would find that. <laughs> or not, yeah. And yeah. it was almost like my body had, it was either perfect or I had nothing. Yes. Again, I think the dynamics almost give you that wiggle room Mm-hmm. stand a little bit more i don't know whether that's just me saying my opinion or whether you guys have seen anything in your own training experience that kind of proves that if that makes sense i'm i'm not sure on the exact mechanism um of why it works or how i i have some ideas but i never actually figured out like, the exact reason and i'm not sure i ever will but i just didn't find that people who did their got their static movements from dynamic ones tended to have their their statics holds uh they were more consistent so like someone who had like um let's say they wanted to get a tuck plant right if i had that person develop it through dynamic training i found that their, their tuck plants was basically always there whenever they wanted it it might not, not always be the longest hold to get their fatigue from a workout but they always could demonstrate it Whereas I found with statics, it was a little bit more fickle. People would have their gains at some point, And then at other points, it's like the static wasn't there. So if you wanted to show it off at a party, you know, you demonstrate you get a good night's sleep and everything and don't drink too much, don't eat too much, because otherwise you won't be able to show it. But with the dynamic method, it seemed that you just kind of always had at least one rep in the tank you could show off whenever you're at a party or something like that. So I'm not really sure why, though, but it just seemed to work that way. I think one thing for me that's interesting with the – and. Um, there was a couple of resources that I bought years ago with calisthenics that mentioned similar progressions to what you're saying. Like it was talking about like a handstand push up, and it would say you need a one minute crow before you can then move on to something like a headstand or whatever. And now I look back on it. I'm like, you wouldn't, let's say you wanted to get for a, you wanted to go and do a 200 kilo deadlift. You wouldn't put 50 kilos on the bar and do it for 20 reps. <laughs> exactly that just wouldn't work yet sometimes for some reason in the calisthenics world that similar logic which we know is a bit stupid gets applied to calisthenics <laughs> it's, I, I say the same thing i say um like if you want to squat you know 100 kilos they don't tell you to unrack 100 kilos and hold it for a minute before you can squat it they say you're going to squat 50 then 55 then 60 and 75 you know what i mean like you don't have to hold it for a minute for five sets of one minute before you can squat hundred kilos. And even after you do hold it for a minute, you might not still be able to squat it because there's still different leverage points and everything. So I always find that really funny too. I use that exact same um, like little like chubby that you use there uh, on people. Yeah, and that was all the time, yeah. And going back to the, the uh, idea of holding something for a minute or however long, um, another myth which uh, I quite like the one your post busted, that it was saying that in calisthenics or in some calisthenics communities, there's almost this obsession with core work. So my question is, uh, firstly, my question is, 
how do you decide whether or not someone needs direct core work is my first question. Uh, the first, so to answer that, um, well, we start off with, by typically not giving people core work. <laughs> it sounds really crazy, but if we put it in right away, you can't really tell if it's helping or not. Like, because it's, it's already in there, so there's core work, but is their core getting worked from the core work, or are these squats building their core, or is the plant's push-up building their core? Which one of it is, is doing it? On the flip side, if we start off by having people work, not work on the core work, and uh, go from there, then we can say, okay, this is going great, blah, 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 blah. Or if it stops going well, then we can add it in if we needed to. But so far, I haven't really found many people who need direct core work to uh, get better gains. Yeah, one of your one of your posts that I really liked, and I can't remember whether it was about a specific movement or just in general, but it said that most people's cores aren't weak, they're prime movers are weak. And it's, yeah. You know, it's not the this isolated part of the body that's weak. It's like you are just weak. <laughs> I love that. Like if I if I uh, hear of another person having to do like you know reverse hypers because their their lower back is giving up during their plants or uh, ab work or dragon flags because their front lever is too weak due to their core, I'm gonna go crazy. Like like the, I I found people oftentimes think that, and it's like no, if you just work on these other movements. Like the uh, like dynamic work for the plants and the front lever, you'll be fine. You'll your lift will go up, and you won't have to do any core work to make it go up. So I'm really skeptical in the idea that core work is really really important for um, improving like things like plants and front levers. And what I like about your approach is that a lot of people go the opposite way. They might be like, right, uh, dips might help you. Um, a hollow body hold might help you. This might help you. We'll give you everything. And then, Oh, you've got a handstand push up, And then it's like, yeah, but you don't really know which of the exercises led to it or whether exactly, it was. Exactly. Exactly. You can't tell exactly what, what made the improvement happen. You can only really tell if you take things away, what didn't make the improvement happen. Uh, that's exactly what our whole idea is built off of. And another experiment that you guys did or, um, one of your thought processes you were talking about is how you either favor high intensity, so heavy lifting, maximal sprinting, or low intensity where you just go out and go for a walk. Um, first question is what's, I mean, you, the, the word wrong is probably the wrong word, but uh, <laughs> what's, what's wrong with the middle intensity, intensity zone? Or why do you guys tend to try not to train there? So we used to do that. Train like what? Wait, we used to train sub-maximally. Yeah. So we never went like super hard super. the way we do now. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to train like this four times a week. So I think we actually just posted a post today on Mindset Monday with a schedule for the standard gym bro, <laughs> where like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday are your workout days. And then you only rest on Wednesday. Um, we used to do that. So we post that. Cool. It's funny. Standard <laughs> gym bro, but we used to do that. We were gym bros. <laughs> but now we train like what? Once, or once like a week basically like we do one day um strength and then like we'll rest for three days and then do a sprint day then we'll rest for three days and then strength day and vice versa so we take an extreme approach to training as opposed to a moderate approach which you can probably <laughs> so further. when we um strength train for example like every rep is like a really miserable day 
So, uh, like, what we do, let's say we're doing pull-ups, right? So Martina's doing pull-ups. She'll be pulling herself up, and I will hold her around the waist and pull her down as she goes up. So I'm making sure she's going to reach the top. She's going very slowly, and it's a grinding lift, but she's pulling herself all the way to the top, and I'm applying as much resistance as I can while she's still able to move. And then when she reaches the top, she holds there, and I grab her harder, and I pull down, and her job is to resist on the way down, and she gets like a really maximal century. So most people, when they train, they train kind of, you know, like doing the pull-up, like only one part of it's really hard, usually around that 90-degree angle. When we train like this, the entire movement is it's a grind. Difficult. It's a grind. Yeah. It's an absolute grind. Um, and it doesn't stop there. So, like, that's the first rep, right? We keep it going. And by the end of it, I'm actually helping her complete one last rep. And I'm forcing her to do that century again and work really hard. So you end up working maximally hard and it ends up being kind of like maximally fatiguing to the point where um, you're just like, I can't do any, another one. And uh, that's like where we have to train for when we do our strength training. The cool thing about that is we found that we can strength train like that one time a week. And then we can take the rest of the week off and not have to train. And we're still able to make gains without having to go to the gym now four times a week. So at the very, very least, from a time perspective, we're working out like one-fourth of the time and still making gains. I think that's, and it's certainly where, um, I mean, the good thing about your posts is that they've made me more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not skeptical. They've made me more curious to find out more. So like some people will see your work and going back to the sucker mindset, uh, they'll see, oh, you can train once a week and make gains. And they'll be like, oh, no, that's rubbish. And then you'll be like, yeah, but have you actually looked at how they're training? If the volume is like come or if the frequencies come way down, then if you know anything about exercise science, the intensity is going to have to be way up. Well, yeah, I'm sure you guys would agree. There is no way that you can train the way you've just described four times a week. Like, no, 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 absolutely not. That would be, that would be the, if actually, if I had a, if if, like, no, Bill Gates came in and said, Philip, get injured and I will give you a billion dollars. I would train like we do, but do it like six times a week and see if that worked. I'm pretty sure that would be the best way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like you yeah. can only train like this probably one time, maybe twice if everything is going great, but I would not do more than that. And with the, so what you've just mentioned there about um, actively pulling Martina down while she's trying to resist you is uh, basically super maximal eccentrics mm-hmm. um, or in layman's terms, something that is so heavy you couldn't physically you can only lower it but you haven't got the strength to uh, raise it how do you yeah how do you um because obviously especially with something like that mm-hmm. i imagine you're very much going up by feel how do you yeah. can can you quantify the intensity or is there just you just go by feel and heavy enough is heavy enough if that makes sense yeah you can't really quantify the intensity um like it's just like you know you kind of feel you can be like oh yeah I feel like I'm really pulling down harder so like when we first started off you know like I could just stand right behind Martina and pull her down and then later I'm noticing oh this is interesting like I have to stand behind her but I have to put my feet further out and then use my body weight to pull her down because I can no longer just pull her down straight with my hands I have to use my entire body to do it so that's one way you can kind of feel the intensity going up but you can't really put a number on it if you wanted to put a number on it, you'd have to do something like um, before every session, you know, do one rep 
and you kind of see where your max is and then you do the real workout, that'd be one way to do it. But you can't really put like a, a strict number on it very much. Yeah. But I like what you've said there. Like when I was first playing about with uh, pike pushups, uh, I would still use a simple RPE method. Yeah. I was like, right, if I shift myself slightly further forward, I can do, I don't know, six reps or whatever. And if I'm slightly further back, I can do, I don't know, eight, nine, 10, whatever. Um, exactly. So e- even that, even if you don't know the exact way, you still know that shifted forward is harder, shifted yes. back is easier. So there's exactly. still, you can still put yourself in the ballpark. And I think another reason I like the name mindful mover is because my connotations of that is somebody who's actually paying attention to training. Yes, yeah. So it's not just, I don't know, the program says eight pike push-ups. It's like, right, I look at my training diary. Last week I had, I could feel it a little bit in my legs. So this yeah. week, if I want to make that harder, I need to shift myself further forward. And I mean, I've even gone to, I think I've mes- uh, mentioned that uh, when I messaged you that I've even played about with using my bathroom scales just to see how much that lean affects. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think we did that. Actually, the other day, Philip was like, put your hands on like the scale at the grocery store. So I did it and I was like, okay, that's how much you're pushing down on me for the back squat. He's doing a back squat. I like push down on the barbell as he's doing the negative and on the way up. So in that way, we can kind of see. <laughs> so we, we, we found that she was like putting about 30 pounds extra on me on the way up. And I was like, oh, solid. That feels pretty good then. So yeah, we were, we were playing around with that on the scale uh, at the grocery store. And we're not taking it too seriously because, of course, it's, it's very intuitive. Yeah. So the yeah. act of um, assisting your partner with this. I, most people, I don't know if they have a partner or not, but for the accommodating resistance, um, reps that we do, which are the reps where like you push down on the negative and then you keep pushing even for the concentric. It's really difficult to see. Like we failed like a few times at first because um, for the negative, it's usually fine. But then the concentric, it's difficult to see how much and where exactly because um, there's a point where Phil is actually weaker. And if I put too much pressure at that point versus other points in the lift, it, like he could fail out on his back squat and then we have to like take out the weight, <laughs> the barbell. It's like so much to like, unpack. But um, it's very intuitive. So at certain parts during the concentric uh, part, I am like pushing down harder and in other parts I'm pushing down less. Yeah, and, yeah. And then even the spot is important too. Like at some points, Phil, like when I'm doing the force reps when I'm or the extended force yeah. reps, mm-hmm. Um, when he's making me go past failure, um, he'll help me out. He'll like lift the bar a little bit at the weak point, And then I'm still pushing the rest of the way. Yeah. I like that. I like that. It is. It also goes to show that like, I mean, we spoke about it earlier, how there's no black and white with, um, both science and training, but like, don't get me wrong. I hate it when I go into a gym and I see somebody and it's like, it's all you bro. And it's like, well, it's not, you're kind of you know, <laughs> off him. Um, but, if somebody, I don't know, if I say to somebody, oh, you know, your spot is doing all the work. If he says, yeah, that's fine because I want to try accommodating resistance and I want to try force reps. I'm like, yep, cool. You've got a reason for doing what you're doing. That's fine. Um, exactly. It's, it's just when people do stuff, I mean, without uh, pun definitely intended, it's when people do stuff mindlessly and they're not. Actually- <laughs> yes, yeah. 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 When you go to the gym, you see one guy doing bench press, but his spotter is doing upright rows. That, that, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, when you when you see the spot as traps and it's just up. <laughs> from. 
Oh, oh yeah, that's 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 probably a good rule of thumb. If your spotter has amazing traps, something's wrong. <laughs> the spotter's just there, like I've got an idea for you. This can be the big five plus one, the upright amazing <laughs> trap races. Um, and going back to the core, uh, the core work. When you do do exercises that uh, train the core, you guys have a couple of rules that you say if you're going to do core this is what we believe you should do. Um, yeah. what, what are those rules and how have you come to that conclusion? So one of them was that it should have a range of motion. So like um, that goes along with the whole like dynamics over statics thing. So like for example, hollow body holes are typically seen as something that is uh, a great core exercise. And we're kind of like, eh, about that one. Like it's like you it's kind of iffy. You don't, I don't, there's not really that great a way to see if it's progressing besides adding more time. So I'm a little skeptical about that one. So it should have a good range of motion. So instead of a hollow body raise, we're thinking maybe like a hanging leg raise, which has a nice big range of motion there. And some free mobility gains, which we also like. Um, and then it should be loadable. So like once again, a hanging leg raise, you can add weights to your ankle and progress it. Whereas with the hollow body hold, I guess you can hold weights on your ankles and your hands. That's probably one way to load it, but it's not really like that loadable. Or um, other movements, like no, maybe like a bicycle thing that people do yeah, uh, yeah. in the gym, that isn't as loadable as something else like a hanging leg raise or maybe something like a gar hammer raise, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And, and also one thing I always think, um, like, like I mentioned earlier, I train youth athletes and it absolutely kills me when, like, and this is why I've stopped programming uh, core work for time because they're like have you got a watch yeah <laughs> no Ugh, like take this and even even like if you're progressing through time let's say i don't know if you're doing something like a plank week one you do 20 seconds and i don't know week six you do a minute yeah that's then 40 seconds that you need to take away from something else like oh, time, yeah. if you've got an hour to train and you extend something that normally takes 20 seconds to a minute where is that 40 seconds coming from exactly you've got to take it from somewhere else. We, we had a post about that exact topic where it's like, if you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else until you have the ability to be in two places at one time and make gains from both of them. That's going to hold true. So every exercise that you include is an exercise that you, um, what's opposite include, uh, disclude, Remove? remove or ex exclude there we go exclude, exclude. Yeah. there we go I was like, what's yes. that word again so every exercise that you include is an exercise that you exclude so or another set of a of a better one so sometimes we tell people like you know hey rather than doing more core work how about you just do more back squats instead i think another way to say it is whatever you say yes to you're saying no to something else yes yeah perfect Perfect. And yeah, one of the a coach whose work I follow quite a lot, he's like, yeah, if you choose to put something in, something has to come out. And, yes. mm -hmm. and initially I read that and I was like, does it have to come out? And I was like, well, you've got an hour to train. So unless there's a portion of the session where you're doing nothing, which if there is, you're doing something wrong, then yeah. you add something in, you have to take something out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And nope. uh, just, just wrapping up here, if, you guys could spend a period of time with a coach observing his, him and his or her athletes. Um, who would you choose to spend time with and why? Oh, that's an interesting one. Mm, I think uh, Louis Simmons over at Westside Barbells, I'd probably love to watch his people train. Yeah. I really like how they have a maximum effort day, a maximum power day, 
and a max reps day kind of thing going on. Like, I really think that's really cool because I like how they train at all different extremes of the same lifts. So if I could like be a fly on the wall at anybody's gym, I think it would be a uh, Louis Simmons for sure over at Westside Barbells. That's that's cool. I lo- I love that. And like I said, I I love that your interest is so varied that you can do these impressive calisthenic stuff. But then when I ask you which coach, you appreciate that even though you might not be I don't know deadlifting in calisthenics, there's still stuff to be learned. And the physical principles that apply to developing strength are the same regardless of whether you want to develop strength for a human flag or develop I don't know. Eddie Hall in a 500 kilo. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not sure our bodies can tell the difference between, you know, of doing, doing a, a, a planche versus doing, you know, like a deadlift, like it's, it's all resistance, you know, right? So I think the principles probably still have some sort of carryover or apply there. And I, I love how, I don't know how he figured it out, but I love how he trains at you know, the extremes. He has one day where everyone's in there lifting really, really, really hard and really, really heavy. And the next day it's like, hey, we're trying to make this bar go as fast as possible. Uh, without it flying into the air and landing back on my throat and killing me. You know, the next day it's like, you know, we're going for the maximum amount of reps you can do with this weight. And then we're just rotating these stimulus around until we get the thing, you know, camps coming out. And I, I love that idea because I love training at extremes rather than training kind of in the moderate middle where you get a little bit of everything, but not a lot of anything. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I, I don't know whose quote it is. Um, I think it might be Dan Johns, but he talks about like a cup of tea and he's like, uh, or he quotes Charlie Fran- Francis, surely, uh, sorry. And uh, Charlie Francis Francis had a quote. He's like, people's highs are too low and their lows are too high. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> he just said like people spend too long in this sort of lukewarm zone where they, yes. It's, yes. it taxes their recovery, but it doesn't really make them that much better. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's what we find is a problem with the, uh, the mod- constant moderate training. It's like you're taxing your recovery, you're, you're draining your recovery but you're not really getting massively, massively better each time compared to where you could just be training really hard and then recovering really hard and then going back in and smashing those PRs and then recovering really hard again and go back in and smash the PRs and recover really hard again. Like I said, at the very least, it saves a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, I think that's another thing that people miss when they say about like the go hard or go home. It's like, yeah, but you train hard. You need to make sure that your sleep is right, your nutrition's right. If you train hard and then you're up till two in the morning, like eating hot dogs, like yeah, yeah it's like train hard and also recover hard. And that that doesn't mean uh, going out and uh, doing a recovery workout that ends up becoming a, a CrossFit Metcon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've we've all seen it happen. Um, Martina, you mentioned uh, thinking fast. Uh, is it thinking fast and acting fast? Thinking fast and acting slow. Thinking fast, thinking slow. Thinking fast and slow. I, I can... Thinking fast and slow. That's what it's called? Yeah. Oopsies. <laughs> I can see it's annoying because I can, I can see the, uh, the book cover with the pencil and the squiggle, but I can't. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember the name. That book. <laughs> thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And uh, is, is there any other recommended resources you have? I know you like Anti-Fragile. Yes, I like the whole um, Nassim Taleb series, so Fooled by Randomness. The, uh, the what series, sorry? Uh, Nassim Taleb, that's his name. Yep. So N-A-S-S-I-M. And Taleb is T-A-L-E-B. Yep. And then he has a series of books. So the first one's called Fooled by Randomness. Uh, next one's called Black Swan. Black Swan, and yep. Anti-Fragile. Yep. And then Skid in the Game. That's and awesome. those are all really, really good books for learning how to become uh, more skeptical and about what you read. 
what what was the first one of the series you mentioned? Uh, sorry, all by randomness. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, um, before we sort of thank you guys for your time, where can people find out more about yourselves or the Mindful Mover? So you can find out more about us on our Instagram. The handle is the underscore mindful underscore mover. We post every day and you can also go on www.mindfulmover.com. We have information there about online coaching and um, we're just releasing actually, we're going to probably do it today or tomorrow. We have a newsletter that we're just releasing now. So people who want to know more like about how to be like how to train smart, um, sucker free sucker free <laughs> then they can also sign up for that we have a link for that on our instagram right now perfect and i will i'll include links to all of those uh, in the show notes and uh, as i said from me personally as well as a massive thank you if anyone listening to this wants to have their philosophy or their thoughts on training challenged go and follow the mindful mover because it'll either challenge what you thought was true or it'll confirm stuff that you've always believed. But either way, it'll make you think. Whereas a lot of stuff on Instagram, you see it and then you forget about it. These guys are the real deal. <laughs> thank oh, you. Thank you so, so much. much. My absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you for accommodating the time, dif- uh, the time difference and uh, taking the time to speak to me. No, of thanks course, for Thank you. It's a great time. My pleasure. Right. Take care, guys. See you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode 15 of the Platform to Perform podcast. If you have any feedback for me or you would like to get in touch, then you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube if you search Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you again in the next episode.